This is Chapter 82 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we celebrate the power of reading with the one and only Meredith Vieira. We get the lowdown on the real-life gangster who inspired the fictional character of Don Corleone, and a new thriller explores what happens to those left behind when a family member mysteriously disappears. America's favorite book is... Actually, I don't know, because I'm recording this podcast before the finale of The Great American Read on PBS, but that won't stop me from talking about it. For the last few months, the eight-part series has explored the books Americans can't live without. The top ten listed books, in no particular order, are the Harry Potter series, Charlotte's Web, Gone with the Wind, Jane Eyre, Little Women, Outlander, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lord of the Rings, Pride and Prejudice, and To Kill a Mockingbird. Now that is a list. The show is hosted by Meredith Vieira, and she tells our Pat Farnack she loved being a part of the series. I am just so glad that I was asked to be a part of it and was able to participate. And, you know, it's just so encouraging to see that people, we live in such a crazy time and it is so fast-paced that you forget that people still love literature uh, and they love a good novel. And we've seen that happen. We've had uh, close to four million votes, uh, people voting for their favorite books. And, and that to us, to me, is very heartening. And it may very well reach four million. We think that it will. And over five million people who've um, looked at our content over various platforms. I believe our Facebook book club has over 50,000 participants. So all of that to me says good literature, uh, it, it, it stands the test of time. You know, uh, when everybody's talking about the dumbing down of America, uh, something like this is is uplifting, isn't it? Totally. Yeah. Totally. I think we really need it. I think we need to remind ourselves what a joy it is to fall in love with a book uh, and and how these books have have changed our lives. You know, I hadn't really even thought about it. You go about your life and everything. When yeah. I got involved, I said, looking at the list, I go, and my favorite is To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay. And the reason is because I read it when I was about 13. I didn't understand in my little corner of the universe, you know, a little suburb in East Providence, Rhode Island, I really didn't know from racism. I didn't understand prejudice. I didn't know those facets of our country. Um, And it it forced me to confront issues that were very important that I do see and also to to, um, evaluate my own moral compass moving forward. And characters like Scout and particularly Atticus Finch, they, they shaped my life. And that's a book. And there are so many books that you can call on that you've read at various points in your life that literally have made you stop and think about who you are, what you are um, in this bigger world, who we are as a people, who we are as a country, all of those big questions while you're reading a book that you, it's just enjoyable. Right, right. But it, it sparks those those thoughts in you that are really important speak to our humanity. You know, you mentioned To Kill a Mockingbird, and that was probably one of the first adult books I ever read. And the only reason I picked it up in the first place, I'm so glad I did, was because it was forbidden. My parents, for whatever reason, I guess they didn't think I was ready. And I was also about 12 or 13. And mm-hmm. uh, I got my hands on the book and they they said, you should not be reading this. You're, you're not ready for this. And uh, it, it has got to be one of the most influential books in my life, too. Yeah, so. and you know, it's funny. with me, it was an, a class assignment. That's how oh, I uh-huh. started reading that book. 
Um, but I think also the reason, and maybe your parents didn't think about it like this, but Scout was our entry into that book. Yes. Or our entree into that book, because that's a little kid. I could relate to her. And so she was the one who, and it, obviously it speaks about her life in that, during that period and her process of growing up. Um, so that's, once I, she captivated me and captured my thinking, then I went along this ride with her. If she had not yeah. been such a pivotal character, I'm not sure that, I'm not even sure I really would have understood it on a lot of levels. I had to see it through the eyes of somebody who was more or less my contemporary. I mean, she's seven, but I was 13, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. much more so than her dad or yeah. than Tom or Boo or any of those other adult characters. Did anything uh, surprise you about the Great American Read series as far as uh, which books were selected, which ones were not? No, not really. I mean, if you look at them, you have the list of the, the top ten, and that mm -hmm. even that can change because some of these folks, they're like voting like crazy now because they're <laughs> realizing it's almost closed. Yeah. So I don't know. I, go, I look at it and go, oh, well, great. And then the people, the producers will say, well, you know, there's a couple that are really moving up fast. <laughs> but if I look at the top ten, I get it. I totally see why they're there. Um, I also think I, I surprised them like Tom Sawyer isn't there, for example. Mm. Uh, I would have thought that might be there. And you can everybody can name something on that list that that really resonated with them um, that didn't make the top 10. But of the 10, I get it. It's interesting because I had read all of those except um, Outlander. I never read it. And that was a book that I picked up this summer. Huh. Because there was so much interest in it, and its author, uh, I had met her, and um, so I thought, okay, now I totally get it. I mean, I've always been a sucker for somebody in a kilt, as Diana is as well, <laughs> Diana, but um, that book, that was good. <laughs> so when I saw it on the top ten, I went, okay, I get that. I might not have before, because I, I just didn't know from it. There were so many books out there. But I think Diana is a, a brilliant writer, and I love the story. So how do you narrow down now from, from 100 to, to 10 and now to, to 1? Yeah. I mean, it's just it's the, the people will speak. It's, and that was, the, that was the way of getting them into the tent to begin with. I mean, the idea behind this series wasn't like, what is the number one book? That's mm -hmm. fun. Mm -hmm. But everybody's going to have their own pick, and they're going to argue it forever and ever. Um, it was really just a, a hook to get people to think about literature again if they had not been doing so, if it had gone off their um, radar screen, to remember books that changed their lives and to be introduced to ones that, like I was, the Outland Outlander, sorry, mm -hmm. that, um, that hadn't really been a book, you know, that I had, had even really been interested in picking up. I just didn't know about it. So I think it did that, and that's great. The voting is fun, and people, you know, it, it, it gets people excited and, and talking and all of that. But if we got people just reading again, yeah. that, that's the success of the series. Well, that's so much fun. Well, thank yeah. you for uh, for doing the interview about this, and, and we certainly will be watching, and uh, good luck with your pick. I guess it's what To Kill a Walking. Pick? I don't know. I have to, I, there's yeah. so many. I'm, I'm like a voracious reader, so I have to think. I know. How's that? Know. That's it's a cop so out, I know. Sorry. <laughs> no, it isn't. And I, like I said before, books affect you at different points in your life. Yeah. Um, and so you could say, well, this book, like I mentioned, To Kill a Mockingbird, that was a very pivotal point in my life, in my formative years. But so was Charlotte's Web. Mm -hmm. You know, when I'm reading um, Outlander, hey, 
it, it got the juices going again, and I learned about Scotland. So it was like all these books have their time and place. It's also fun to go back and look at books that you haven't read in a while to remind yourself, what did you love about them? And what are they sparking you now that maybe they didn't then? You know, because every time you read a book, you get something new out of it, which is interesting because they're also your old friends. They're your reliable buddies. That's why you hold on to them. Well, thank you so much for for doing this, and we certainly will be watching. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Okay. Tony DiStefano is an award-winning writer and reporter who's covered the mob in New York for more than three decades. His latest book, titled Top Hoodlum, is a biography of Frank Costello, nicknamed the Prime Minister of the Mob. He spoke with our Tim Sheld. What is it about these mob figures in New York that make them such colorful figures to write about in, in books like you do? Well, if you, if you take the historical approach, I mean, some of these characters were uh, legendary in their time, Costello being one of them, Lucky Luciano, his boss, being another one. Uh, they had a certain panache and a certain entree to a number of levels of society that the modern mafia people just don't have. They were tied into politicians. They were tied into uh, uh, the romantic period of prohibition, if you want to call it that. And they were into a lot of uh, uh, interface with a lot of politicians uh, during their time. Uh, You don't get that now as much, but what you do get is a lot of the uh, sort of the blood and guts today uh, and the sort of intrigue that... uh, uh, you know, follows the violence that we've seen, you know, since the, certainly the 1980s. I guess um, most people would would agree that the real explosion in the interest in, in, in the mafia in mainstream culture occurred with the, the movie The Godfather. And um, I guess you've answered this uh, a couple of times, but uh, Frank Costello probably played into, um, you know, the making of the character of uh, Don Corleone, wouldn't you say? I would say so. Most people agree with that. Uh, Mario Puzo once said that his mother was the model for the uh, uh, the Godfather character. But I think what he did was blend Costello's character with that of Joseph Profaci, who was the old olive oil king, and Carlo Gambino. So there was a synthesis, and Car- Costello had that raspy voice. Uh, that became legendary during the, uh, the Keith Alvey hearings of the 1950s. But yeah, Costello had a uh, was contributing to the characterization that we saw with The Godfather. There's so much we could talk about within the book. You uh, you, you you deal with a lot of subjects. You just brought up the Keith Alvey hearings, which were uh, very famous in in lifting the veil off of uh, organized crime or the La Cosa Nostra. Uh, some folks. Uh, determined not to not to be involved or took the fifth. That was not Costello's strategy in this, was it? That's right. His uh, his strategy was to go out there at the advice of some friends to go out there and show him to be legitimate because Costello wanted that aura of legitimacy. You know, he was sort of like the Jay Gatsby of the mob in his time. But he went out there and he testified, and as you know, it was a disaster. It was a big media event. It was probably for its time as big as we had with the Kavanaugh hearings uh, uh, in the past few weeks. But uh, Costello didn't acquit himself well. He appeared nervous, evasive, fidgety, and contentious. And he wouldn't let them photograph his face uh, for TV, so they photographed his his hands, and the hands sort of uh, 
uh, telegraphed his emotion. They were fidgeting, they were clasping, and they were, uh, you know, showing all sorts of anxiety. And that became sort of emblematic, the emblematic image of Frank Costello. And you're right. I mean, in the period, it pulled the veil, the hearings pulled the veil off the uh, uh, Cosa Nostra or the mafia, whatever you want to call it, in this country. And it was the big media event of the day uh, in this sort of early period of television. You um, obviously played off a little bit of, uh, as Costello was known as the prime minister of the underworld, and, and a lot of that had to do, as you say, with his legitimacy as uh, or his his efforts to, uh, you know, gain some sort of public legitimacy. Uh, was also part of it, as I read in, in, in your writing, uh, his uh, making uh, the, the mafia into a national organization, a national crime syndicate, where, where um, mob bosses from different cities uh, got together to to try and make their business flow. Was that why he yes. was prime minister? Well, he was he was prime minister because he had this not only aura of legitimacy, but he was a facilitator and a and a compromiser and a sort of statesman who didn't like violence. Look, he could be violent, and we know he was violent in the past. But he he tried to smooth things over in a way where there was sort of almost a collegiality within the structure of the mafia, and it was lucky Luciano. Uh, his boss, who actually set up this structure that we've had over the years of the Mafia Commission. And Costello played a role in that because he was like a sort of minister without portfolio, if you want to put it that way. And smoothing over situations with different crime families. He didn't like violence. He tried to be the diplomat. Hence the name, Prime Minister. Right. Uh, a couple of uh, uh, good stories in the book, and I'm sorry that I'm jumping around so much, but uh, That's you, fine. <laughs> uh, you, you, you make me think of a couple. But it, it truly, you know, it's a pretty famous story, but, uh, you know, the attempted hit on him and how he survived is, is, you know, one of the New York folklore stories and mob hits, isn't it? Oh, it is. I mean, had he been a microsecond different in his turning of the head, and he might have been dead. But as you know, he was grazed with a graze wound and actually walked out of the hospital that night. And uh, uh, it was long ascribed to be Vincent Giganti's handiwork that that did that. But it was one of those stories because he survived. uh, And uh, in a period when a lot of mob people were getting killed. So that sort of set to Costello the with other persuasion, of course, that let's, you know, let me get out of this life and sort of take a, take a back seat, which is what he did. And, and, and tried to do so on Long Island, uh, tried to do so within his own family structure. Uh, Uncle Frank, the horticulturist, uh, it's an interesting uh, turn of, uh, of uh, is, personal isn't life, it? isn't it? <laughs> it is. He, uh, you know, he used to buy the Girl Scout cookies from the uh, the Girl Scouts out in Sands Point when they came around to his house, and uh, he'd go to the beach parties, and, uh, and he tried to fit in. Uh, but of course, you know, people of the old money culture and the old world, and you know, the newspapers, of course, never let him forget that he was, uh, you know, a crime figure in his day, and that's what he's left with. Even though he did strive to, uh, uh, you know, be a legitimate man. And one of, as the book describes, uh, you know, one of his success stories is really his political influence. And he was within the Tammany Hall era. Uh, He had to coexist with uh, a mayor who was, uh, um, you know, uh, wanted to be famous for fighting uh, crime. I think there wasn't in your book the story of how uh, LaGuardia 
uh, scooped up uh, some of the slot machines of Costello's uh, outfit and dumped them in the river. Uh, that that kind of thing. that was a very yeah, complicated please. time, right? It was. I mean, Fiorello LaGuardia came in and he detested the gangsters, uh, the tin horn punks, as he called them. So he went after Costello because he was uh, he had the most visible uh, slot machine operation in the city. And after a protracted legal battle, did prevail against Costello, who moved his operation, by the way, to New Orleans, where the more uh, uh, pliant uh, Huey Long and his uh, political machine uh, sort of allowed him to thrive. But then back in New York, of course, as much as LaGuardia tried to chase Costello, uh, Costello still retained and and grew influence within the old Tammany Hall, particularly among certain district leaders. Uh, and of course, that created other problems in the 1940s when uh, he was accused of uh, of meddling in the election of a judge, uh, Judge Aurelio, and they leaked some wiretap tapes. Actually, it wasn't leaked. Uh, the DA. Uh, uh, Hogan uh, put it out to the newspapers as a way to try to embarrass and sort of uh, uh, neutralize uh, Costello. Uh, but it didn't actually work that way because Costello retained political influence throughout most of the 1940s and became an issue in a number of mayoral campaigns, uh, believe it or not. And, and was influential in presidential politics as well. He did. He was supposedly, the story goes, in the rooms uh, in Chicago when they were uh, nominating uh, FDR uh, for the presidency. So, uh, you know, he had his hands in in a lot of things. And this was true of a lot of the uh, major figures of the time, including Luciano. Uh, They did cultivate uh, uh, political connections, because I think Costello, in growing up in East Harlem, saw that some of the old-world Italian figures uh, of that period and that geography uh, got some of their strength and power from cultivating political connections. So I think it's a lesson that stayed with him. You don't get that today. Right, right. It is, uh, it, it is, it is an interesting study of um, you know, how the mafia operated, how they were able to uh, stay in power, uh, but different from today. So, so more prominently, more popularly, you know, New Yorkers know of the legend of John Gotti. What what would be the difference between the two? I mean, John, John Gotti it was a was a punk. He was a killer. He was ruthless. Uh, Costello seemed to be a more button down guy. Yeah, you're right. Uh, John Gotti wanted to be a gangster. That was his aim, and that is what it became. And he was happy with that. Frank Costello, you know, was a gangster. But he also wanted to be a legitimate, considered to be a legitimate man. And he also put together a number of legitimate business operations. Uh, he invested in oil and gas leases and uh, had various businesses. He had real estate uh, on Wall Street even. And um, I, that's the difference. That's a major difference. Uh, Gotti, you know, being a gangster was fine. That was his life, and that's, that's all he needed to be. Frank Costello aspired to be something else, and he kind of got there close, but uh, not really. You know, he had never his legacy, of course, is as the prime minister of uh, of the mafia or the underworld. Without giving away uh, too many of your stories, is there one or two that you think people would be surprised uh, to know about Frank Costello? Well, I think the he had his bootlegging career. 
uh, span from Montauk Point to New York City to Philadelphia and other places. But he had his family and he uh, took over a mansion in uh, Queens known as the Blackwell Mansion. It was in Astoria. And they took that place over and they had uh, secreted thousands and thousands of bottles of of, uh, of booze, whiskey, or champagne, whatever, in the walls. And they thrive for for the longest period of time, transshipping uh, liquor out of there uh, after they got it from the North Shore of Long Island. And it's kind of an interesting story uh, because it's one of these things that's almost forgotten. Uh, the other thing, you know, a couple of other things that strike me, it's, it's possible, based on the uh, uh, relatives I talked to of Costello's who survived today, that he may have a little bit of Jewish blood in him. Uh, they did these, you know, uh, genetic testings for ancestry, and they came up. Uh, this is his first cousins. Um, they came up with uh, some trace of uh, of uh, of uh, Jewish ancestry. So that that's kind of uh, an interesting little touch. It's it's a short mention in the book, but uh, I found that a little surprising. Uh, but not totally because there was uh, a lot of influences in that southern part of Italy. Uh, the other thing was the, you know, the fact that uh, I think he, he, you know, he, he really did try to blend in to the moneyed culture in the North Shore of Long Island. Uh, that, that was surprising to me. Uh, I thought he'd just try to fade away, but he didn't. He tried to be part of that community. Uh, and, of course, you know, he... Uh, uh, he, he put the mafia on the map in terms of the publicity, good or bad, that he got from the Kefauver hearings. Yeah, it was an amazing, amazing time uh, then when when people were hearing that 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 testimony. And uh, great to go back and look at look at some of those stories. The book is called Top Hoodlum: Frank Costello, the Prime Minister of the Mafia, and uh, written by Tony DeStefano. Uh, Tony, thank you for your time. Great, great conversation with you. And thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. In his new thriller, the book Club Widowers, author John Michael DeMarco puts a dark twist on the happy suburban book club gathering. He tells me where he got the idea. I've known a lot of women over the years who were in book clubs, and I've seen how much they bond together through that experience. And one day the story hook just fell into my head. What if some book club moms went on a trip together and vanished without a trace, no clues? How would the husbands and the dads and the ex-husbands and the kids deal with it? How would they embrace that grief and ambiguity and go forward through things like uh, birthdays and homework and holidays and those kinds of things? And what if, as part of this story, the key themes from the books they had read together mirrored what the, what the family and friends were going through? And so that drops into my head, like often the best ideas do, and uh, kicked it around for about a year and a half and then uh, dove into it. And before I knew it, I had this really long, unwieldy first draft and went through multiple revisions since then. It really seems like the in and outs of everyday life is really what drives all the characters in this book. You know, definitely so. I think they're characters that uh, people can definitely relate to, right? They're just... um, regular suburban individuals trying their best to, to make it in life, to uh, cope with day-to-day challenges, to find, to find meaning and purpose. Um, there's even a dog. So it's, uh, my, my fiction tends to be about just everyday people 
right, who are uh, dealing with their own strengths and weaknesses and facing challenging situations. And let's follow these characters and see how they persevere, see how they overcome these situations. And you also tackle that kind of awkwardness for, for the husbands involved where their wives are really great friends, but the guys don't really know each other. Correct. Yeah. They bond uh, through this unfortunate experience. You have you have the one gentleman, Ben McBride, who whose wife didn't go on the trip. He sort of emerges as the rock for the other guys to stand on. And you just go deep into the stories of each of these, of, of Ben and each of these three men who's whose wives have, have vanished and their kids and and just the things they have to overcome right, as they deal with ambiguity and, and disappointment. In addition to these main characters, the wives who've disappeared, the, their husbands and the ex-husbands left behind, there are a lot of um, supporting characters that, that come in and mm-hmm. out of the book. Um, and it's also packed with lots of twists and turns. What's your method for keeping track of all this as you're writing? <laughs> Uh, I think in this case, madness was the method. Um, I I spent a lot of time writing out character backstories and creating flowcharts and mind maps and those sorts of things. And through multiple revisions, I saw myself both adding and taking away or merging characters, um, created a lot of timelines. And um, I really had to ultimately think about, okay, uh, how do I ensure that I go deep in developing a few main characters, but also sprinkling these other individuals who in some way impact the main characters. And when you're dealing with a book that includes a large cast of individuals uh, across a a long period of time, and uh, originally 150,000 words before I cut about 40,000 words, it's a challenge. Uh, So just lots of refinement until you get to that place where you think, okay, every character in this book has a has a purpose, even if they're a minor character. I think that's very important. I also find it very helpful that with the flashbacks that you've included, that you've put them in a different font. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you found that helpful. I that did. just has always made sense to me. <laughs> yeah. That, otherwise, you have no idea where you are or when you are. Exactly. And it, and it helps to inform the reader as you're, you know, as you're trying to adjust. It's a lot of information, but they're all, you know, I'm, I'm, just started the book and I'm already like into it and didn't want to close it to come over and, and talk to you. So, <laughs> well, th- well, thank you. That, that makes my day. That probably <laughs> makes my October. <laughs> so, so people who aren't familiar with work that you've done, you're a life and executive coach by training, right? I am. I've been writing all my life and I, I spent my twenties as a journalist, which really just fine tuned the writing craft and was a great education on life. And then in my, really in my later 30s, I, I got back into writing prose after my father passed away that really just sort of reignited something inside of me. And at that time, I had gone from journalism to going to graduate school and getting into nonprofit leadership and just started building this additional communication toolbox on top of writing and got into public speaking and coaching. And now I make a living as an executive coach and life coach and do a lot of leadership development consulting, uh, but writing is still um, that lifelong passion and something I would love to keep doing more and more of and eventually do full time. Is there a blend of the two in what you do? Do you find the writing helps what you do with the coaching, that the coaching and the, the, the situations you come across inform your writing? 
Without a doubt. Um, I think that ever since I started writing as a kid, I've wanted in some way to to provoke deeper thought in people, to to um, elicit more critical thinking. And certainly as an executive coach consultant, you ask these powerful open-ended questions as a thought partner to help someone get clarity on what they're trying to achieve, as well as be able to uh, articulate the steps they'll take to reach their goals. And so I think that uh, just the craft of writing, the process of writing shows up very much in my work, which is wonderful when those things can reinforce each other. So this latest book is a fictional book. You know, you've also written nonfiction. Do you like to just play with the two? Do you have a favorite that you find you're drawn to? What's interesting is that during my 20s and 30s, when I was in journalism and then getting into back into the business world, my my prose dried up for so long. It seems that I could only write nonfiction for the longest time. And it's been such a delight to, in the last uh, decade or so, to dive back into fiction. But just to answer your question, I love both. Uh, I've written a lot of blogs. I continue to do that. I um, find that it's, it's so important, though, when you're writing fiction, to remember that first and foremost, it's about story. It's about characters, and that if you if you spend the if you try to focus on starting off with a message you want to spread to others, something that you might do in like a nonfiction work. And your fiction feels off base. It's, it always has to begin with story and characters. Then, as you go deeper and deeper, perhaps some key themes might rise to the surface. So, are you already working on your your next book? Sort of. I have been just giving a lot of deep thought to the key experiences I've gone through across my life, and just sort of peeling back some of those layers, looking for some potential story ideas, and I've actually outlined a a collection of, of short stories. And lately I've been looking at a couple of those more closely and thinking that a couple of them might, might turn into novels. So uh, you could say I'm in the process right now of starting to write some prose, but not sure um, how soon a new, new novel might emerge. Hopefully in the next year or so, I'll, I'll have a, a first or second draft completed. So stay tuned. Stay tuned, please. Well, the new book is The Book Club Widowers. John Michael DeMarco, thank you for uh, joining us this morning, and I'm going to get back to reading this book. Awesome, Lisa. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And we've come to the end of this chapter, but we'll be back next week when a pollster stops by to help us make sense of the world of political polling just in time for Election Day. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880books and feel free to reach out to us on email at books at WCBS880.com.